Section 9 of History of Egypt, Chaldea, Syria, Babylonia, and Assyria, Volume 3, by Gaston Maspero. Read for LibriVox.org into the public domain. Chapter 1. Ancient Chaldea, Part 9. Similar monsters, it was believed, appeared from time to time in the marshes of Chaldea, and gave proof of their existence to the inhabitants of neighboring villages by such ravages as real lions and tigers commit in India or the Sahara. It was the duty of chiefs on the borderlands of the Euphrates, as on the banks of the Nile, as among all peoples still sunk in semi-barbarism, to go forth to the attack of these beasts single-handed, and to sacrifice themselves one after the other, until one of them more fortunate or stronger than the rest should triumph over these mischievous brutes. The kings of Babylon and Nineveh in later times converted into a pleasure that which had been an official duty of their early predecessors. Gilgamesh had not yet arrived at that stage, and the seriousness, not to speak of the fear, with which he entered on the fight with such beasts, is an evidence of the early date of the portions of history which are concerned with his hunting exploits. The scenes are represented on the seals of princes who reigned prior to the year 3000 B.C., and the work of the ancient engraver harmonizes so perfectly with the description of the comparatively modern scribe that it seems like an anticipated illustration of the latter. The engravings represent so persistently, and with so little variation, the images of the monsters, and those of Gilgamesh and his faithful Ibani, that the corresponding episodes in the poem must have already existed as we know them, if not in form, at least in their main drift. Other portions of the poem are more recent, and it would seem that the expedition against Kumbaba contains allusions to the Elamite invasions from which Chaldea had suffered so much towards the twentieth century before our era. The traditions which we possess of the times following the deluge embody, like the adventures of Gilgamesh, very ancient elements, which the scribes or narrators wove together in a more or less skilful manner around the name of some king or divinity. The fabulous chronicle of the cities of the Euphrates existed, therefore, in a piecemeal condition, in the memory of the people or in the books of the priests, before even their primitive history began. The learned who collected it later on had only to select some of the materials with which it furnished them, in order to form out of them a connected narrative, in which the earliest ages were distinguished from the most recent, only in the assumption of more frequent and more direct interpositions of the powers of heaven in the affairs of men. Every city had naturally its own version, in which its own protecting deities, its heroes and princes, played the most important parts. That of Babylon threw all the rest into the shade, not that it was superior to them, but because this city had speedily become strong enough to assert its political supremacy over the whole region of the Euphrates. Its scribes were accustomed to see their master treat the lords of other towns as subjects or vassals. They fancied that this must have always been the case, and that from its origin Babylon had been recognized as the queen city to which its contemporaries rendered homage. They made its individual annals the framework for the history of the entire country, and from the succession of its princely families on the throne, diverse as they were in origin, they constructed a complete canon of the kings of Chaldea. But the manner of grouping the names and of dividing the dynasties varied according to the period in which the lists were drawn up, and at the present time we are in possession of at least two systems, which the Babylonian historians attempted to construct. Barassus, who communicated one of them to the Greeks about the beginning of the second century B.C., would not admit more than eight dynasties in the period of thirty-six thousand years, between the deluge and the Persian invasion. 
The lists, which he had copied from originals in the cuneiform character, have suffered severely at the hands of his abbreviators, who omitted the majority of the names which seemed to them very barbarous in form, while those who copied these abbreviated lists have made such further havoc with them that they are now for the most part unintelligible. Modern criticism has frequently attempted to restore them, with varying results. The reconstruction here given, which passes for the most probable, is not equally certain in all its parts. It was not without reason that Barassus and his authorities had put the sum total of reigns at thirty-six thousand years. This number falls in with a certain astrological period, during which the gods had granted to the Chaldeans glory, prosperity, and independence, and whose termination coincided with the capture of Babylon by Cyrus. Others before them had employed the same artifice, but they reckoned ten dynasties in the place of the eight accepted by Barassus. Attempts have been made to bring the two lists into harmony, with varying results. In my opinion, a waste of time and labor. For even comparatively recent periods of their history, the Chaldeans, like the Egyptians, had to depend upon a collection of certain abbreviated, incoherent, and often contradictory documents, from which they found it difficult to make a choice. They could not, therefore, always come to an agreement when they wished to determine how many dynasties had succeeded each other during those doubtful epochs, how many kings were included in each dynasty, and what length of reigns was to be assigned to each king. We do not know the motives which influenced Burassus in his preference of one tradition over others. Perhaps he had no choice in the matter, and that of which he constituted himself the interpreter was the only one which was then known. In any case, the tradition he followed forms a system which we cannot modify without misinterpreting the intentions of those who drew it up, or who have handed it down to us. We must accept or reject it just as it is, in its entirety and without alteration. To attempt to adapt it to the testimony of the monuments would be equivalent to the creation of a new system, and not to the correction simply of the old one. The right course is to put it aside for the moment, and confine ourselves to the original lists whose fragments have come down to us. They do not furnish us, it is true, with a history of Chaldea such as it unfolded itself from age to age, but they teach us what the later Chaldeans knew, or thought they knew, of that history. Still, it is wise to treat them with some reserve, and not to forget that if they agree with each other in the main, they differ frequently in details. Thus the small dynasties, which are called the sixth and seventh, include the same number of kings, on both the tablets which establish their existence, but the number of years assigned to the names of the kings, and the total years of each dynasty, vary a little from one another. Is the difference in the calculations the fault of the scribes, who in mechanically copying and recopying, ended by fatally altering the figures? Or is it to be explained by some circumstance of which we are ignorant, an association on the throne, of which the duration is at one time neglected with regard to one of the co-regents, and at another time with regard to the other? Or was it owing to a question of legitimacy, by which, according to the decision arrived at, a reign was prolonged or abbreviated? Contemporaneous monuments will some day, perhaps, enable us to solve the problem which the later Chaldeans did not succeed in clearing up. While awaiting the means to restore a rigorously exact chronology, we must be content with the approximate information furnished by the tablets as to the succession of the Babylonian kings. End of Part 9 Read by Professor Heather and By. For more free audiobooks, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org.